if you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer, I think. <laughs> These are steps we all must take to protect Scotland. The people of Scotland will not be disrespected by this Parliament. Mr Speaker. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon or evening, depending on where you are and when you are listening to this podcast. Welcome to a new episode of Scottish Politics Explained. Today, we'll be discussing an issue that has been at the centre of debate in the past weeks and affects thousands of LGBTQ plus people worldwide. I'm talking about conversion therapy. According to Stonewall, conversion therapy or Cure therapy, it's also called reparative therapy, refers to any form of treatment or psychotherapy which aims to change a person's sexual orientation or to suppress a person's gender identity. So according to them, this practice is based on the assumption that being lesbian, gay, bi or trans is a mental illness that can be somehow cured. In the UK, all major counselling and psychotherapy bodies, as well as the NHS, have concluded that conversion therapy is actually dangerous and have condemned it by signing a memorandum of understanding. Unfortunately, the practice has, however, not been banned in the country yet. Here in Scotland, on the other hand, on the 18th of November, the Scottish government has committed to banning conversion therapy and, to this end, creating an expert group that will advise on this process. Now. To give you more information about the phenomenon, we're going to be hearing from a survivor of conversion therapy who has also been at the centre of the campaign to ban the practice here in Scotland. I'm here today with Blair Anderson. Hi, Blair. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I have had a long morning, but I'm here now. That's good to hear. So as I anticipated in the introduction to this podcast, I have invited you today because I'd like to talk a bit about conversion therapy and, you know, do it with somebody who knows firsthand what it is and its consequences, unfortunately. So first of all, I think it's good to start with a trigger warning for our listeners. So we're going to be talking about abusive behaviors and basically hate crimes against LGBTQ plus people. So that also has, you know, elements of severe mental health issues with suicidal thoughts and things like that. But before we delve into conversion therapy itself, why don't we start with a little introduction? So Blair, could you tell me a bit more about you, what you do and a bit about your activism? Yeah, of course. So my name's Blair Anderson. My pronouns are he, him. I am one fourth of End Conversion Therapy Scotland. We are campaign group set up 2020. Um, to get Scotland to pass criminal legislation banning conversion therapy. I am also a survivor of conversion therapy, having gone through it as a child. Um, aside from the sort of the conversion therapy campaigning side of things, I uh, live in Glasgow with my partner. I work for the Scottish Green Party and I'm running to be a council candidate in the West End of Glasgow next year. When we talk about conversion therapy, I think a lot of our minds go directly to you know pictures of priests in the shadow holding a crucifix and you know the basic stock pictures usually published by media when talking about this phenomenon the issue is however that conversion therapy is much more complex than that so what is conversion therapy actually and how you know how would you define it yeah that's really interesting because whenever you talk to people about conversion therapy there are a few things that they always say unless they're like super plugged in, they'll say, what's that? Or I can't believe that still happens. That doesn't really happen. Or they have a few things in mind of what conversion therapy is. There are a few examples of conversion therapy that some people might know of. So 
Alan Turing, the wartime uh, mathematician, computer guy, did the Enigma machine. He died by suicide after he was he went through conversion therapy. He was gay. He was forced to take um, hormones to reduce his sex drive so as not to act on his sexuality. And ultimately, he killed himself. Some other examples of conversion therapy that people think of are like sort of Christian summer camps in the forests in America. You know, everyone goes away, that sort of thing. Those still happen. Those those are forms of conversion therapy, and they still do take place. But we as a campaign group define conversion therapy not in terms of how it happens or where it happens, but what it is. So we would say that conversion therapy is any form of treatment or conduct or action that is done with the intention of getting someone to suppress or deny their sexuality, or to change their sexuality, or to deny their gender identity and live as if they were cisgender. So that's what we consider to be conversion therapy, is anything with that intention of forcing someone to effectively be cisgender or straight, or to deny aspects of their sexuality or gender, not to act on them, not to express them. Okay, so this practice has been in the media quite a lot in the past few weeks, uh, also due to Joanna Sherry's comments but I've noticed that as you kind of mentioned now a lot of people are still confused about what conversion therapy is many believe um, also that it's being vanquished here in the UK that it doesn't happen anymore so from your experience what are kind of the most common myths or misconceptions around conversion therapy yeah so some of them the biggest misconception is that it doesn't happen anymore and people people think that not because they're denying the problem exists, but because they don't know what exactly the problem is. The thing with Alan Turing and hormones and corrective corrective hormone treatment or summer camps, that doesn't really happen. It does happen, but it happens in a pretty small minority of cases. What does happen, what is still a problem, are other forms of conversion therapy. They often take much more informal um, forms. So for example, what I went through, I never went to a place to, or to see a therapist. I what happened to me was conversion therapy, but it happened over the course of four years in my family home. And it was things like, you know, it's things like coercive and controlling behaviour that you would often see from when we talk about coercive control from a partner, for example. Similar types of behaviour is that. So coercion, control, gaslighting, abuse. Often it could take the form of threats. It could take the form of um, blackmail. It could, um, it could be things like prayer or sort of teachings. So for example, my own experiences of conversion therapy, I came out as gay and I was told that that wasn't an option. I was told by my, my mum who I came out to, I don't have a gay son. So that those were my options. I could be gay or I could be a son, but I couldn't be both. I was 14 at the time. I was a child. I, um, I didn't know how to look after myself in the world. I didn't know as a 14 year old what I could do without a family and a home. So that was my decision made for me. I decided to just not be gay. Now, obviously, you can't decide to switch it off. You can't decide to change it. It's not like changing what you think about things. It is like a fundamental core aspect of who you are. So you cannot change your sexuality or your gender. But what I did for the between 14 and 18 while living at home was I went along with conversion therapy to suppress my sexuality, to hide it, to deny it, to make sure it was never expressed. So part of that was making sure that I never told anyone else, um, apart from the person, I, the, my mother, who I came out to first. She made sure I didn't have any um, sort of like LGBT support groups or anything like that, or even just coming out to my friends at school and definitely not coming out to the rest of my family. Like that wasn't an option. So it was that sort of 
the isolation of that made it much more effective, really, because I didn't know that what I was going through wasn't normal or right. So yeah, that's one of the big misconceptions is that, oh, conversion therapy doesn't happen. What I went through was conversion therapy. It was only after I moved away to university at the age of 18 that I was able to put a bit of distance between myself and my family. I was able to sort of get out of that environment. And it was only when talking to talking to like my flatmates and stuff and new people at uni that they were like that's a really weird childhood like that's not normal and I was like oh I hadn't really thought about it before like I only had my own childhood as a frame of reference really and I couldn't talk about it I couldn't compare notes I couldn't say to people in my school oh I'm going through this because I'm gay because you couldn't like that's the whole point when did you first realize it was conversion therapy so yeah no it was only when I moved away to university that I was able to get a bit distance move on, move away from what I was going through and also process it. Did you ever talk to your family again about that? Like, have you ever tried to confront them on the issue? Or So, like I said, I went through conversion therapy from about 14 to 18, say. I moved away from university when I was 18 and I'm 23 now. When I was 18, 19, the first couple of years at university, I still had a relationship with my family. It was strained, but I still had a relationship. I didn't tell anyone else what was going on. So things didn't really change, but I had a bit of distance and I had more control. So my mother had less opportunity to control my life and to make sure I was suppressing my sexuality, but she still did it when she could. I, I always knew growing up that if I could make it out to university, we can deal with it from there. Like I just had to survive. If I could get out of the home, I could go from there. I didn't really have a plan for what to do from there. I was 18, I was struggling with mental health issues. I'd moved out of home for the first time. I was starting uni, like I had a lot going on. I didn't really have the capacity to also deal with that. Um, Yeah, you were really, really young. I mean, you're still very young and you're like processing a lot. Yeah, um, so it was only after a couple of years of talking to people and everyone like, wow, that's super, super messed up. Um, eventually, I kind of got myself in a place where I was dealing with my mental health issues better and I was able to confront my family. So I told the rest of my family what I... I came out as gay for a start, but then I also had to tell them about everything else that had gone on. So that makes it doubly difficult. If I was just coming out, to them that would have been difficult enough but coming out to them and saying and it's been a secret and your wife mother slash mother has been keeping it a secret from you for five years as well and has been putting me through all of this stuff and i have these really severe mental health issues like that's like a triple coming out and so for them i think it was impossible to distinguish between my sexuality my relationship with my family my health issues and what i had been through like it was impossible to distinguish those things so after I did that I said you know I want some distance I want to not have a relationship with my mother but have a relationship with other members of my family that lasted about a year 18 months because I you know my the rest of my family were not the ones who did this to me and perhaps if I had came out to someone else first things would have ended up differently but so I still tried to have a relationship with them but over that time when that relationship was breaking down Eventually, they just lost patience. Like, there was, they had to choose a side between my mum and me, and one by one, they chose my mum. And that's fine. Like, I understand it was a difficult thing for them as well, but it got to the point where I wasn't getting anything out of the relationships that I was trying to maintain with my family. And so I 
went public as it were and i went on telly um as part of a campaign a separate campaign to improve support for estranged students so students without family support that i was doing around 2019 i told my story publicly for the first time and everything changed from there i was just getting it went from being oh we think you should make up with your mum because it's making life difficult for us trying to navigate it and it would be easier for us to just outright abuse so yeah so it's been a couple of years now almost two years um that i've just not had any contact with family because like i say only one person did the conversion therapy but the rest of them would it was not an environment in which um i felt massively supported even after it all came out so it kind of let you away from the first question but I think your experience is so important just to understand how conversion therapy happens and how it's kind of easy to miss it from like as you say if it's like a family member who's doing it it's very very difficult yeah exactly this is this is one of the things so you said that um in the past few few days and few weeks attention has really picked up on conversion therapy I wrote a little piece about my own experience in the times tweeted a screenshot of that and it got quite a lot of traction the number of comments underneath that that were like oh i went through conversion therapy or oh i've never had a name for my experience before and it's been really it's been really difficult because you're telling someone they went through conversion therapy that's very difficult but also it's been quite rewarding to know that you're raising awareness of something that previously people don't have a word for there is something to be said just for being able to put words on things. Like, I didn't know that gay people existed until I was way too old, until I was, like, double digits, 10, 11, 12. And then having a word for it, it just helps you explain it better. I, I was experiencing mental health issues when I was 13, 14. It wasn't until years later that I understood the concept of depression, and then I had a word for it, and I was able to process it more easily. So, yeah, I think if nothing else even if nothing else changes in the law the ability to for people who have been through these experiences of trying to be converted of trying to have their sexuality or or gender denied or changed the ability to put a name on it and to, to understand that what you went through was conversion therapy i think if nothing else even that is just a win obviously there's more to be done to support people but um just being able to to understand that what you went through wasn't acceptable is is something yeah, definitely. The fact that you you are able to name it, as you said, is crucial for mental health issues in particular, and it can change everything. It can change your understanding and, as a consequence, your ability to process things. I'm also aware that it's difficult to have an idea of the status of the phenomenon in Scotland because it's difficult to gather data in the first place exactly for this reason, for this kind of secrecy around the phenomenon, and it's difficult to do research about it. Do you know anything about how the current situation in Scotland is, either in terms of data or just like what are the types of conversion therapy that are happening here? So you're right. Um, data is very difficult to get on this sort of thing um, because because of all the reasons you mentioned, because by definition, conversion therapy is suppressing. Like no one is exactly what happened to me. You don't realise it's conversion therapy until years later and you can't tell anyone about it because... The whole point is you can't tell anyone about it. And um, so it is really difficult. In terms of the format, the forms it takes, like you said, um, some work has been done on this. The Ozan Foundation 
O-Z-A-N-N-E, uh, OZN Foundation, they're like a, a f- uh, not a think tank, but like a, an organisation that works to sort of bridge the sometimes divides between sexuality, gender, and people of religion and faith. They've done a faith and sexuality survey, and it was all across the UK, so not Scotland specific, but there were cases in there of people reporting the types of conversion therapy they went through. And it ranged from prayer and um, going to see a counsellor to things like quote-unquote exorcisms, so like deliverances, as they're sometimes called, all the way up to the most extreme um, electroconvulsive therapy, shock therapy, um, hormone treatments like to suppress your sexuality like happened to Alan Turing in some cases correct so-called corrective rape um so that's it can be really really extreme it can be really really um intense and violent uh, directly violent in some cases and quite a lot of cases and more often than not it's much more informal it's much quote-unquote softer um, it seems not as big a deal, but even then, it's still conversion therapy if it takes place, even if it just takes place once, but often these take place over the course of years, being prayed at and prayed for and taught that you're wrong and asked to change for years, um, especially when you're in an environment which is claustrophobic, so it can be in the family home, it can be in a faith community, it can be um, in any other sort of close knit community. The, the isolation the intensity of it and the, the just the nature of it, it can be really, really degrading. One of the things that are is one of the things that most people probably don't know about conversion therapy is just how it can ruin your life. Like it is not just the course of weeks or months or years and then it's done. Once conversion therapy stops, that's not the end of it. The, the majority, the vast majority of survivors of conversion therapy go on to develop severe mental health issues um, and it can range from anxiety and depression quite a lot of people get eating disorders quite a lot of people develop um, self-harming tendencies I think the data the most up-to-date data we have is that one in three survivors of conversion therapy have attempted suicide in the past year it's 40, 47% almost half of trans survivors of conversion therapy have attempted suicide. You know, and these are the people whose stories we are hearing. Like, there is a huge number, like, an un- like we'll, ne- we'll never know, but there is a huge number of people out there whose stories are not being told, who are currently in conversion therapy and who haven't made it out. Um, so yeah, I, fin- I wrote a piece for the National the other day and I finished it by saying, like, I am very privileged. Like, I went through a very difficult thing, but also I'm a cis white man who's been to university like I am very privileged and I was very grateful to have a platform there are an unbelievable number of people out there who don't have the privilege or the platform to be able to tell their story and more often than not people of color more often than not people from disadvantaged backgrounds more often than not trans people like these are the stories that we need to be hearing more of because these are the people who are most at risk um of conversion therapy and of having extremely bad um experiences of conversion therapy yeah definitely and um i think especially even though like you said there is a range of formats and experiences of conversion therapy the fact that for example in your experience 
it was perpetrated by a member of your family makes it even more difficult to kind of spot if that makes sense because you have a kind of close bond so maybe you didn't even you know even want to fully realize it because it's very painful so yeah we definitely need to talk about it more and I'm glad that your campaigning is actually helping people to put a name on it so unfortunately we have limited time on the podcast of course but I wanted to end this conversation with a couple of questions so first of all where can we find additional resources or information about conversion therapy and secondly but probably most importantly where can people affected by conversion therapy seek help yeah um so end conversion therapy scotland um on social media at ect scotland um we are the campaign group who are pushing for action on conversion therapy in scotland you can um head there to find out more of more about what we're asking for more of the research and the sort of the statistics behind um the case for a conversion therapy ban for people who have been affected by conversion therapy at ect scotland we are just four volunteers we do not have the capacity or the skills unfortunately to be able to support people who've gone through that we don't want to we don't want anyone to rely on us when we're not able to provide that service personally i'm always happy to talk to people um you can get me on twitter at blair anderson 35 i'm always happy to talk to people about my own experiences and you know and um, to help other people understand their experiences in a purely personal capacity but um gallop uk uh, g-a-l-o-p gallop uk are a uk-wide um, lgbt charity for survivors of domestic abuse sexual assault that sort of thing they have recently launched the national conversion therapy helpline that's open monday to friday 10 a.m to 4 p.m and you can reach them at 0800 130 3335 and so yeah if you look up Gallup UK and they've recently launched a dedicated conversion therapy helpline right that's very helpful thank you so much Blair for this information and for the conversation overall it's been very insightful although of course unfortunately for very negative reasons but yeah thank you again for coming on the podcast no problem thank you for having me This was the fourth episode of the new season of Scottish Politics Explained. You can follow Scottish Politics Explained on Instagram and Twitter at Podcast. If you wish to support a podcast, click the link in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.